Welcome to the ASHI Podcast. I'm your host, Gonzalo Berman, the Editor-in-Chief of ASHI, and I'm joined by Dr. Priya Nori, a Deputy Editor, whom I think needs no introduction. Today, we have another star-studded cast. I'm really quite in awe of them. And it's great to discuss uh, the, a couple of interesting and really timely topics with our team. Today's team includes, or the guests include, Drs. Miranda So, Rachel Bartash, Helen Sai, and Niraja Swaminathan. We'll be discussing their collection of articles on transplant stewardship available to download for free in ASHI. Again, the, all of these articles are open access in ASHI Journal. The first article is entitled, Bring It On, the Top Five Antimicrobial Stewardship Challenges in Transplant Infectious Diseases and Practical Strategies to Address Them. This was published in ASHI in 2022 and was one of our top downloaded and shared articles of the year. I encourage all of you to check it out. The second article, is bring it on again antimicrobial stewardship and transplant infectious diseases updates and new challenges this updates us on the original challenges and explores new potentially paradigm shifting concepts in transplant infectious diseases like with the other article i strongly encourage you to download it before or after listening to this podcast welcome to all our guests it's a huge honor to have you with us and i'm going to turn the program over today to dr dr priya nori uh to take it away and lead us with this very spirited discussion. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Gonzalo. Welcome to all our guests. I have the great honor of knowing you all personally and it is wonderful to see you all in the same place today on the ASHI podcast. Um, so the first question is basically for each of you. Can you briefly introduce yourselves, your practice setting, and how you became interested in stewardship in the transplant ID population? Why don't we start with you, Rachel? Sure. Hi, everyone. Um, and a huge thank you to Dr. Nori and Dr. Bierman for having us today. Um, it's really great to all be in the same place and see my co-authors again. So I'm Rachel Bartash. I'm one of the transplant ID attendings at Montefiore Medical Center in New York, where I see patients on our um, inpatient immunocompromised transplant ID consultative services, as well as in outpatient clinic. In addition to my clinical work, I am also the head of, the steward of stewardship for our special populations, which includes our solid organ and hematopoietic stem cell transplant recipients. I became interested in stewardship for our transplant ID population during my fellowship after seeing just how many unknowns there still there were at the time and still are in terms of best practices in this population. I think transplant is it's such a multidisciplinary field, so it really lends itself to stewardship interventions. But clearly, these are complex patients who are at high risk for infectious complications, so it must be done cautiously and really weighing those risks and benefits of such interventions. So I think it really the complexity is what drew me to the field initially. Great answer. Thank you. Miranda, what about you? Thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, see all of you today. I really appreciate that. But most of all, thank you for the opportunity to co-author those two papers. Uh, and then, of course, to chat today on the action. So I'm the manager of the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program at the University Health Network in Toronto, Canada. So the University Health Network has uh, three acute care hospitals as well as the three rehab sites. Now, of the three acute care hospitals, we have the Princess Margaret Cancer Center, which has the largest stem cell transplants program. We also have the Edgemara Multi-Organ Transplant Center at the Toronto General, which is also one of the largest in North America. And my kind of my 
journey into antimicrobial stewardship in the immunocompromised patients, especially transplant, actually came from the early part of my career when I was um, uh, working in oncology. As you know, that was almost like kind of my first foray into the infectious complications of this population. And after I completed my post-baccalaureate doctoral pharmacy degree, I pivoted to ID and stewardship and rediscovered this whole complex population. And I am actually, I actually tell everybody that I that I meet, I am passionate about antimicrobial stewardship in immunocompromised patients. They're most at risk of um, infections and they are most in need of effective antimicrobials. So we should do everything we can to help transplant recipients. Thank you, Miranda. I'd love to hear your passion coming through. So next, let's cut over to Nirja. Why don't you tell us about yourself and your journey into transplant and transplant stewardship? Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast and for the opportunity to be an author on the paper. So I'm the most, I think, newly minted and the junior most person in this panel today, newly minted faculty at the University of Utah Hospital at Salt Lake City. And we also have two centers, the University of Utah, which has the solid organ population and the Huntsman Cancer Center, which houses all of our hematology and BMT patients. And my interest in stewardship in transplant, I think, developed quite organically. I think like Miranda and Rachel mentioned, this population is so complex. And, you know, I think as part of our everyday clinical decision making, it's kind of natural to find yourself interested in looking at the evidence behind the practices of antimicrobial prescription, and then realizing that there are so many knowledge gaps. And so there's, it's ripe for interventions and more research. And then it's so rapidly evolving that it's quite exciting to be a part of it. Great. And finally, Helen. Hi, thank you for inviting me here today. Um, my name is Helen. I'm a transplant infectious disease attending over at Montefiore Medical Center, and I had the pleasure to train under both Priya and Rachel. I also find that stewardship in transplant infectious diseases to also be a very exciting field. I think that there's a lot of potential areas of growth and also successful interventions. And although the data um, to guide optimal treatment in our transplant population, it's not as robust as we'd like it to be, there's a lot of emerging evidence to help build that foundation. And by nature, there's a lot of variability and complexities to our transplant recipients. So that also invites a space for some creativity and innovation in developing stewardship best practices. I love that creativity and innovation applied to stewardship in a specialized population. That's really great. Great way to take us into the next question, which is for Miranda and Rachel as sort of the senior members of this writing group. Can you briefly summarize the original paper for our readers and let us know how you organically arrived at that group of challenges to share with our readership? Actually, it was uh, a very organic process. So I do recall, you know, for the first paper, it was still kind of in the midst of the COVID-19 and uh, pandemic. And uh, we spoke over Zoom several times to brainstorm ideas, what we identify as commonly encountered challenges that we all independently experienced. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think the theme was where we do not see robust evidence, like Helen had pointed out, and yet where we also see 
practices that are very varied from center to center or even prescriber to prescriber. And through that process, we kind of filtered out to kind of the, the five things that we really wanted people to know about and summarize the key evidence and critique them where it is warranted. So I think that's kind of our process. I'll let Rachel speak to the follow-up paper. Just one thing to add to that is, you know, as Miranda mentioned, there and one of the themes that is evident throughout the paper is really that there's not a lot of data supporting a lot of our practices. But I think when we did sit down for the initial paper, we tried to pick at least a few that had the most substantial data. So things like febrile neutropenia um, management and things like asymptomatic bacteria and renal transplant were sort of easy targets for us to discuss because there is some evidence there, as opposed to some of the other areas where there's really much less. For our readers, I, I would like to encourage you guys to take a look at table one of both articles, which are absolutely killer and do a great job summarizing not only the existing evidence, but areas of potential growth as well. So with that, uh, let's transition to Helen. You're the first author of the follow-up paper where you update the original challenges and then raise a couple of new sort of hot topics for exploration. Can you tell us more about those and how you selected those? So in our follow-up paper, we decided to focus on updates in three of the five original challenges. So it'll be febrile neutropenia, C. difficile infection, and asymptomatic bacteria in kidney transplant recipients. I think we chose these three areas because there was um, a lot more evidence that had emerged since we wrote our original paper. So for instance, the challenge in febrile neutropenia really is how do we develop a de-escalation framework that's based on current, but also sometimes conflicting evidence in the literature, and that can also be simultaneously used broadly, but account for individual clinical and host factors. In our original article, we focused on the diagnostic stewardship role in C. difficile infections. And in our follow-up article, we shifted that to talk about the complexities and how to navigate the multiple available treatment modalities. So things like fedoxamycin, eslatozumab, and the fecal microbiota transplant, especially when transplant recipients were not specifically included in those original treatment studies. For asymptomatic bacteria, since we last wrote the paper, there was a randomized controlled trial of 80 kidney transplant recipients by Antonio et al. that was published in 2022 that showed that asymptomatic bacteria in our first two months of the first two months after transplant and our kidney transplant recipients did not decrease the risk of urinary tract infections. So that was an area of uncertainty those first two months in patients who had ureteral stents or catheters that finally had been addressed in this study. There were some study limitations, but I think it shows that there, it's an encouraging first step in developing some treatment guidance for this particular population. Fantastic, Helen, thank you. Nirja, the next question is for you. What are unique considerations for stewardship in this population, such as risk of AMR, C. diff, SSIs? How do you balance the desire for optimal patient outcomes uh, from serious infection with the need to prevent these things through stewardship? Yeah, that's definitely a challenging aspect to this, this population. There's two parts to that question. So the first aspect, which you asked about unique considerations, I think the first one that Rachel and Helen already alluded to is that 
you know, there's a, the data that informs a lot of the stewardship interventions are not always available for this population. So there's discomfort in extrapolating findings to the immunocompromised patients. And so they're often viewed as being kind of exempt from the guidelines. The other aspect, I think, is physician perceptions and fear because they're such medically complex patients and they don't always fit into typical clinical syndromes. Often we'll see that these patients may not have a fever or leukocytosis, even though they're sick. And so it's difficult even for a transplant uh, ID team or stewardship teams to question antibiotic utilization or to narrow spectrum or shorten courses because there is a perceived risk of severe illness or graft loss, which outweighs the risk of antibiotic-associated adverse events. And so people opt to be more cautious or conservative by prolonging courses of antibiotics. But in reality, this is the population that most needs stewardship interventions because they're at such high risk for multidrug resistance or C. diff and toxicity. And another aspect, I think, is because it's multidisciplinary teams that are involved in the care of these patients, sometimes communication and education about stewardship can be challenging. So I guess the second part of the question about, you know, how do we balance this? I think the most important is to develop close working relationships with the transplant teams. Face-to-face kind of handshake stewardship that we talk about is uh, goes a long way in being able to de-escalate or narrow spectrums when appropriate. Also, it helps to develop institutional guidance or protocols for more common scenarios. And then adhering to that is easier sometimes. And we can incorporate all the stewardship elements into that. So I remember as a fellow at Montefiore, we had incorporated MRSA NAIR screening for febrile neutropenias on the BMT floor, and we showed that it reduces vancomycin utilization. So I think that goes a long way. And then in the areas where we don't have data for specifically for the immunocompromised population, we should probably be okay with applying existing data from the immunocompetent patients wherever it's feasible. Great. Thank you. So on a related note, Helen, to what extent can transplant services be taught to be good stewards and be on the same page with us when it comes to things like AMR and C. diff prevention? How do you communicate stewardship goals to them? And in your experience, are some types of services more receptive than others? I think, fortunately, transplant services are already built as a multidisciplinary team with shared goals. And being good stewards inherently also means finding opportunities to improve patient outcomes. So I think things like decreasing rates of antimicrobial resistance or C. difficile infection is actually well aligned with our overall objectives of transplant care. A major underlying issue here, and I think we've mentioned this already, is the absence of strong evidence. So for our transplant recipients, and that creates a lot of uncertainty for us, but also for our general transplant services. So as the high quality evidence grows and we learn how to interpret it, how to apply it to our patients and how to communicate it, I think it's going to be much easier to create and implement antibiotic and diagnostic stewardship interventions as a team. That's a very uh, positive note to take us into the next question. Thank you. So in these papers, you guys discuss in a a very advanced way, multiple evidence-based interventions such as but not limited to preventing overtreatment of asymptomatic bacteria and kidney transplants, 
targeted antifungal stewardship in liver and lung transplant patients, allergy de-escalation, et cetera. Can you tell us which of these or perhaps some others that you've successfully implemented at your institutions and how you pulled that off? Miranda, let's start with you. Thank you. I think maybe speaking from a programmatic perspective, I think step one really is to leverage what is already in place in terms of the infrastructure, knowledge base, all those foundational pieces of an institution's antimicrobial stewardship program. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We need to build upon what's there. And I think that's very important because, you know, if you are already generating antibiotic use report or AMR or antibiograms, it is not difficult to extend that to do a transplant specific antibiogram or transplant specific antimicrobial use and cost metric reporting. So I think those also go a long way. I think the other piece that I think is helpful, at least from our center's experience, is to put together the team to formulate local facility specific guidelines. We all spoke to the difficulty in getting high quality evidence. So it's important that we interpret those papers together and develop consensus. And I think that has been very helpful for us. That's not to say it is not without challenges. As everyone has already mentioned, you know, a lot of this is patient-specific decision-making. And so, again, good professional relationships go a long way, and that's something I continue to learn every day. Wonderful. Any of the others would like to share some of the successful examples of interventions they've uh, managed to implement at their own places? So yeah, I think, you know, like Miranda mentioned, really partnering with your your other services is really key to getting people to agree on sort of what the best management plan is for these patients on like a broader level. Again, they're all sort of individuals that need some tailoring. I think one area we've been successful at is in our management of asymptomatic bacteria. I think it took a lot of education, but our, our initial rates of treatment were about 90%, and these have declined over the past few years as we've done a lot of education about you sort of when not to treat asymptomatic bacteria, bacteria and also decreasing the amount of reflex cultures that are being done by our, our transplant teams has, has helped on that as well. One thing that's not mentioned in this list, but I will say has been successful, um, has been utilizing MRSA nasal swabs for our patients in terms of decreasing vancomycin utilization. That's been really helpful in our um, stem cell transplant patients. That's where we have the most um, robust data to show that the intervention's been successful, but probably across all of our transplant patients, this has been a, a, a huge success as well. That's wonderful to hear. And I think a cost-effective, universally applicable intervention that uh, it really, the data on that is just continuing to increase in terms of which syndromes it can be applied to. So thank you for bringing that up. So the next question will be also kind of a group think. Thankfully, in our field, there have been several new drug approvals over the past few years. They always kind of state how dire it is, but when you really look back over it, they, there have been multiple new antifungal approvals, anti-CMV agents, new C. diff therapeutics. How do you guys, as experts in this area, approach these new agents for either treatment or prophylaxis in this population? And what are still some remaining challenges to bringing these onto hospital formularies? 
So, Marinda, I'd like to start with you because you guys have a, a kind of a dream <laughs> nationalized health service, and I imagine that the challenges are sort of different. And so if you could share how you've approached these new agents, uh, I think we would all greatly benefit. Thank you, Priya. I completely agree that, yes, we do have a different healthcare system. However, we face totally different challenges. Some of them might be similar, but a lot of our challenges are different. I think one of the issues that actually, in fact, it's it's been described at the federal government level is that with these new drugs, many of them are not available in Canada. They're not marketed because we're considered a small market. It's too onerous for the companies to try and bring it to, to our regulatory bodies to, to be approved. And so this is actually one of the biggest problems. Now, for the ones that we do have access to, for example, Daxamycin, cost prohibitive drugs such as isoprocanazole, podaxomycin, it's still a challenge for us. So we do have to have a system in place so that, again, taking back the programmatic approach, you know, to have processes in place so that applications can be done smoothly. And then, of course, you know, presenting the evidence, the pharmacoeconomic analysis, it's definitely helpful given kind of how costly it is to keep patients in an acute care hospital. So I think those would be kind of the challenges and also some of the solutions, particularly for this population. It's so fascinating. It really, these um, large macroeconomic things really uh, make me very interested in the state of healthcare. Nirja, I'd like to um, have you jump in with, with a response to that because while we had the honor of training you in a certain type of environment in the Bronx, now you're in a totally different kind of environment. And I'm curious to know how you approach these challenges of new therapeutics there. Yeah, I think uh, I find that there's a lag between the data that comes out and you know when it's available on formulary and often there are the logistics in what you know as a clinician at least involve like getting prior authorization or you know all of that takes some time i think our pharmacists are often very helpful in being able to navigate some of those challenges that happen when with ordering these things so i find that even if there's also the differences between uh, patient demographics uninsured versus insured and and so on but regardless just getting the prior authorization approved in a timely manner can often be very tricky. But, you know, like recently I had a patient who we finally managed to get approval for phosmenogepics for a fungal infection involving her sinuses, but it involved talking directly with the drug company and trying to get compassionate use as well. So so that's an aspect. So I'm learning every day because, you know, as I think it's helpful to have people that have done it before sometimes um, who have individual relationship with some of these drug company representatives. And and so that helps. So for our listeners, if you could see the reactions of the faces in our, on our panel today about having successfully managed to, A, say the name of that drug and B, get authorization for it, um, we should all push the button for the clap hands emoji, because it's truly deserved. Uh, Rachel and Helen, can you 
think of an example here for us locally of a drug that you would kill to have on formulary and you think it's going to be a game changer for your uh, patient population, but we just haven't managed because of cost or whatever issues? I think it would be nice to see Pesotuzumab be more available as an um, outpatient infusion, especially for patients who are still currently being treated for C. diff, since most of that evidence is giving it as adjunctive therapy while they're on therapy. And I think other outside of access to these medications, I think that what I'm also learning on the clinical side is that how to use these new medications, right? And learning about when they're applicable or and some of their side effects that I have to watch out for. Helen, that's a great response. I remember you and I shared a patient together, you being the clinician and me being the um, the OPAP person, and we desperately tried and tried to get them the patient the drug, and it just never, we were never able to do that, unfortunately. So I really like your summary of the situation, which is that if we lower barriers to access, then we as clinicians will develop a much stronger knowledge base on how to use and apply these agents. Rachel, what do you think about that? Was there something, is there a, a drug you just wish you could have gotten your hands on but haven't been able to? Um, no, I think, you know, the one that comes to mind that I think we use the most is probably Maribivir, but I you know, it's always a struggle when new agents become available. You like desperately want them to be on formulary, but if you're not able to continue it on the outpatient side, it's like a really big challenge. And so I, I think that would be the one that I think we would use most frequently, just given the, the amount of patients we see with CMV um, and the alter, alternative therapies having a lot of toxicities. I think that would be the one that I would bring on, on formulary next. Okay, so now I'd like to shift gears to a different concept that you guys discuss, which is diagnostic stewardship, specifically for conditions like C. diff and UTI. And so I want to start with Neeraja here. To what extent can diagnostic stewardship principles be applied to this population's to this population, and what are some notable exceptions where we can't just say, well, don't test for that condition and therefore don't diagnose and don't treat? Yeah, I think there's definitely avenues to implement uh, diagnostic to stewardship in this population. And I think it can be done at various levels, um, test ordering, processing, and also just how the lab reports it. Um, so for C. diff, um, definitely diarrhea is a, a really common condition in this population, both for solid organ as well as for the hematology patients. But it's important to address indiscriminate ordering of the C. diff test because that does lead to overtreatment. So I think one intervention for diagnostic stewardship is just creating institutional well-defined criteria for testing. And so looking at prior C. diff tests, kind of confirming true diarrhea, so more than three liquid bowel movements, ruling out laxative use should all be bundled into the order for testing. And I think many centers do this by either prompts on the electronic medical record for the ordering provider, or sometimes having the lab personnel take care of it so they reject specimens if they do not meet some of these criteria. And most centers are doing like a multi-step testing for C. diff, but that can be challenging in the transplant population, especially when there are discordant results. So the multi-step process is usually a glutamate dehydrogenase and toxin assay followed by a PCR. And when there's discordant results, so 
a toxin negative PCR positive test. So the clinical significance of that can be pretty unclear, especially in a transplant population, and that often leads to unnecessary treatment. So that's an area um, that probably needs more investigation because it's unclear which subgroup of patients with that toxin negative PCR positive result may benefit from treatment. But there are some studies that are available And I did come across one from, I think, Hogan and colleagues in JAMA, which actually had over 50% immunocompromised patients. And they compared outcomes by blinding the PCR results only or toxin results only. And they found that uh, most patients where the PCR results were available, they got treated, whereas if only the toxin results were reported, they went untreated. But overall, the rates of resolution of diarrhea, length of stay, and mortality were not too different. So that supports withholding treatment for this toxin-negative PCR-positive group. But it can be challenging to implement that if a patient has recurrent C. diff, so that's a gray area. And then for the UTIs as well, as we mentioned in our paper as well, diagnostic stewardship would not involve not ordering urine cultures reflexly for all patients who get a urine analysis and avoiding screening for asymptomatic bacteruria. And I think until recently, there was a gray area there for the initial two months post-transplant and also in the context of any GU tract manipulation involving stent removal and placement. But even that has been shown to not really require additional antibiotics, especially because several of these patients are probably on Bactrim, which also offers some protection for UTIs, and that's the they're getting the Bactrim for PJP prophylaxis. So I think all of that is possible, you know, as diagnostic stewardship interventions to avoid reflex urine cultures on everyone. In fact, at the university, we're talking about maybe trying to create a separate urine analysis order where, because transplant nephrologists need it perhaps to monitor for proteinuria, but like not including the the bacteruria screening. So maybe creating a separate order set with only the components that are required for the nephrologist to follow. Okay, thank you both for the very thoughtful answer and for those references. So it sounds like in general, you guys are in favor of diagnostic stewardship for a lot of conditions. Helen, are there others that, let's say, a generalist like myself wouldn't think of, but are common syndromes within transplant ID for which you wish there were a little bit more um, stringent use of, of diagnostic testing? Tell us about that. I think the area that I think is most challenging in terms of diagnostic stewardship, because there's so much uncertainty and differences in the test itself, is CMV. So um, there's a lot of variability in terms of the what is the clinical clinically meaningful viral threshold to restart prophylaxis or to uh, start treatment and the test itself you know the the tests are getting better in terms of the lower limit of detection and so that makes interpreting your the result you get very difficult and challenging so for our audience, there are a lot of head nods going on when Helen mentioned CMV, and I'm sure there's head nods going on at home as well. Um, so Helen, thank you for raising that, uh, that concept. Okay, so the next question is for you, Miranda. I learned something absolutely brand new. I learned many things brand new, but this one really stuck with me, which was uh, your discussion about the link between acute graft versus host disease in the hematologic malignancy population and gut dysbiosis due to antibiotic exposure. Can you tell us more about that? Like what is currently known about that link 
And then how do you kind of, how do you use it to our advantage in stewardship? Thank you. I'm glad you find that fascinating because my mind was completely blown when I first came across that concept. And I am very fortunate that locally at our, at our Princess Margaret Cancer Center, we have a, a very keen allogeneic stem cell transplant group who are super interested in optimizing antimicrobial use in their patient population. So I'm very lucky that I get to work with a team who are equally interested and invested in antimicrobial stewardship as I am. And when I first came across this topic, I brought it up to them. And a lot of them have had training in European centers. And right away, they said, oh, yes, we recognize this for quite some time. Earlier on, it was based on animal models, experimental studies, where they found there's a link with worse outcome when there is dysbiosis in the microbiome. But later on, based on more data coming out, and we made references to that in the follow-up, in the sequel paper, and it turns out that there is actually, seems to be a, a pretty interesting association. I would say, you know, we don't know if it's causal at this point. Obviously, this is multifactorial. There are many contributing factors to patients who have poor outcomes, but it does seem that, you know, if we annihilate all the good bacteria, in our system, be it through chemotherapy exposure, multiple prolonged antimicrobial exposure, plus healthcare exposure, nosocomial pathogens. We do create an environment that could lead to gut dysbiosis, and with that, the immunological response and the acute GBHD. So there's emerging data, and I encourage everyone to look at this topic. In discussing with um, you know colleagues it would seem this is kind of a good way to link it up to how we should better define antimicrobial use in the pre-stem cell transplant, peri-stem cell transplant, and post-stem cell transplant period. All of these periods are crucial, and it requires very detailed discussion in terms of risk and benefits. And so locally, earlier I talked about locally developed guidelines. We are in the process of updating our local high-risk fibronatropenia protocol, and this will definitely be front and center of the discussion. I also want to bring up one other point. You know, antibiotic allergy delabeling also goes part and parcel to how we select appropriate antimicrobials. For many patients, maybe a beta-lactam, beta-lactam inhibitor, uh, beta-lactamase inhibitor combinations such as peptazo could be the workhorse. For other patients, could be carbapenem could become the workhorse. So we need to think very carefully the implications of these broad spectrum antibiotics on the longer term consequences, short term and long term consequences. Thank you for bringing up that just uh, like crucially important um, issue within stewardship and enlightening us about that link between dysbiosis and antibiotic exposure. So the last question, we'll start with Rachel, but then I want to open it up to the group which is if you were to come back and write a part three for ASHI, which is bring it on yet again, what remaining gaps or challenges would you take on? And uh, what do you feel that as a collective group we could do better in terms of stewardship for this population? Yeah, there's still so many unanswered questions in transplant. I think we could like write three, four, and five and still have plenty to discuss. 
Um, I think one of the big areas and what we touched a little bit about um, in the the reviews and a little bit about today is really expanding into diagnostic stewardship a bit more. I, I think particularly how it um, is going to be applied to metagenomic studies that are becoming more and more available and how these are playing a role in our immunocompromised patients. Um, I think the data is like just evolving there um, and it'll be, a, obviously it has financial implications and, and reasons to steward it for a number of, of reasons. So I think that would be one area I would consider um, investigating more. It, it, th things we can do better from a stewardship perspective in general, I think, is really trying to implement these interventions on the clinical side. On the clinical side, right? We have where we do have some data. It's always still a struggle of of making those changes clinically. I think one of the examples is in like duration of therapy for febrile neutropenia, right? There's a lot of data that's emerged over the past several years, but a lot of places I think still struggle with early discontinuation because our guidelines don't necessarily reflect that. So I think taking that that where we do have good data and implementing it into practice is really the next step in um, in stewardship. Great. So metagenomics, putting evidence into practice. Nirja, you go next. Yeah, I agree with both of those things. I think the, and also the shorter is better paradigm that, you know, we're trying to implement more and more in transplant as well. And there are at least a few clinical syndromes where it's definitely has good data, um, pneumonias, uncomplicated ones, and UTIs, cholangitis. So kind of applying that in practice and doing better with applying the evidence, that's definitely an area that we could do better at. Helen, what do you think? So I think there's still a lot of areas of exploration in some of the challenges we mentioned in our follow-up paper. So for instance, the delabeling of the penicillin allergy, it sounds like it could be very simple and implemented, but actually in yeah, it, it's not at all because it's so resource intensive and the resources are limited, but it would be really nice to be able to see kind of a strategy of how to balance those limitations because it could have such a big clinical impact and in our transplant population, but also in our general population as well. And then the second challenge that one of the challenges we also discussed was how to prevent the surgical site infections in patients who are colonized or at risk for the gram-negative multidrug-resistant organisms. So I think that's going to continue to be an ongoing challenge um, in the next few years as we continue to use our broad-spectrum antimicrobials. So, you know, we did mention, you know, is there a way that we can develop a clinical prediction tool to help stratify those patients? So it would be nice to see that come into practice. And then finally, Miranda, you have the last word on this one. I agree with everything everyone has said. I encounter those challenges on a regular basis in my in my practice. I want to explore, I think one of the things that we need to explore is kind of the behavioral psychology amongst all the all the professional teams that are in the circle of care of the transplant recipients. I think that would go a long way. We know that a lot of these things, the principles from you know, the general population, we have better understanding of how nudging works, of how some of these uh, clinical decision-making tools can help us. I'd like to see a greater exploration into how that could be applied in a, such a complex situation when it comes to you know, transplant recipients and the multi multiple teams involved, the behavioral psychology. 
Wow, that's fascinating. So, okay, so for our readers and for our authors, because I'm going to hold them to a follow-up piece, we have metagenomics, uh, applying the evidence into practice, shorter is better, allergy delabeling, uh, colonization status and surgical site infections, clinical prediction scores, and then finally the behavioral psychology of the transplant providers. Absolutely fascinating stuff. So that concludes today's podcast episode. I'd like to thank all of our guests today, Drs. Rachel Bartash, Miranda So, Nir Jaswaminathan, and Helen Sai. We are so grateful for your contributions to ASHI and look forward to future contributions. And uh, for our listeners, this episode is also recorded in honor of National Donor Day on February 14th, 2024. Thank you for listening and thank you for joining us today.